Dr. Amalia Gonyas-Malka. Welcome to Womanity, Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggles for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, democracy, racism, socioeconomic class division, and gender-based violence. Joining us in studio today is Ms. Lillian Kluman, who is a Dutch politician with the Labour Party. She's currently serving as a Member of Parliament in the Netherlands and was the former Minister for Foreign Trade and Development Cooperation of the Netherlands. Prior to this, she was Chairwoman of the Labour Party. And in terms of recent recognition, she was made a dame in the Pontifical Order of St. Gregory the Great. She was awarded the Aletta Jacobs Prize for her commitment to and successful endeavors for the rights of women and girls all over the world. And also won the McAvely Prize for creating She Decides, a global movement for women and girls to safely exercise their rights to decide on what they do with their bodies. Welcome to South Africa. And Thank you. Welcome to the show. Yeah, very happy to be here. We're so glad that you could join us. And we will certainly be talking about She Decides in more detail because that really has been part of the crux of, of why you've been visiting the country. But to begin with, your career didn't start in politics and social activism has featured really prominently, beginning with your social work during your studies in the 80s, working for Foster Parents Plan as a fundraiser and then director for Mama Cash, which was an international fund that awards grants to women's initiatives, and then later working for the development aid organization Cordaid. Then you shifted into politics, chairing the Labour Party and serving as Minister of Foreign Trade and Development Cooperation of the Netherlands. Please, can you briefly share with us some of the highlights in this journey? Yeah, it actually, it was a, a wonderful journey. And especially if you look uh, where I come from, what my background is, I come from a very loving family. Um, my parents and grandparents came from a farmer's background. My parents had to leave school after six years, so they only had primary education. And when they married and they got children, they um, made this promise to each other that their children would have any opportunity that would be in front of them and that they would not try and hold us back so that we could use every talent uh, that we had because they came also from loving families, but of course, uh, relatively poor uh, in those days for girls to go and study was unthinkable. Yeah, they they gave us uh, a lot of self-confidence, basically. And so they would say, you know, you're not better than anyone else, but you're also not lesser than anyone else. You're just who you are. And so that gave me a lot of self-confidence, but also maybe the kind of activism that you need if you really want to change things. Because you know, it's not self-evident that I'm sitting here um, in our family. I mean, 50 years ago, if you would have said, you know, one of us is becoming a minister, well, we would not have thought that that would ever happen. Not because we could not be one or that we didn't have the talents, but just because it was not for us. But here I am. It is for everyone. Yeah. So go for it. When you think about it, it, it emphasizes actually the importance of education. Oh, it does. Because... That's, I mean, what I always say is when I grew up, my father was a milkman and we didn't have any network or connections. Uh, we had 
you know, our talents and we had a very good education. And so the education to us was our ticket to a better life, a better yeah. future. And uh, you can never underestimate uh, the importance of education. Also, of course, like many people, there's teachers that really inspire you, yes. uh, that push you uh, when it's needed. And, and so that was also very helpful. Yeah. But I find it shows you what you don't know and also how much more there is to know. It's quite a, a humbling experience. And um, I think that people cut themselves short if they don't continue to learn and, and be active in the world. Oh, I, I would definitely agree with you. Um, there is this vast knowledge on many, many issues that you don't know yet. And sometimes you learn uh, by reading a book and studying. And many times I found you learned, <coughs> you learn just listening to people and uh, hearing their stories, getting their perspective, <clears throat> trying to match your own thinking uh, to what the other says. So I think learning is also about being very open and receptive uh, to others and not being stuck in, in your own way of seeing and doing things. And in terms of doing work for others, and that's going to be part of the, the mainstay of our conversation today. In 2017, just a year ago, you conceptualized She Decides in response to the reintroduction of the Mexico City policy, also known as the global gag rule, by the new American government, a measure which forbids American government funds to be used by organizations making safe abortions available or open to discussion. She Decides has just celebrated its one-year anniversary with uh, ministerial champions gathering in South Africa, and numerous events were held around the world. Please tell us more. Share the She Decides story. Yeah. How did it begin? Well, um, real change begins with someone thinking, you know, this needs to be different or we will not accept this. And this is also how She Decides started. When President Trump signed that policy, I knew that it would have enormous uh, negative impact on many, many women and girls all around the world because programs and organizations that provide information about safe abortion also provide in sex ed education, uh, provide maternal services, and all those services would also be cut off. And so we know that because of this policy, you don't get less abortions, you get more abortions and you get more unsafe abortions with all negative consequences for, for women uh, who need to undergo that. And so I thought we cannot let that happen. And I was a minister at that time. And so when I uh, went to the office on Monday morning and sat with my staff, I said, you know, we have to do something. We should try and create a fund to get the money that is lost uh, by uh, the decision of President Trump. And when we're talking about the money that's lost, yeah. how, how much are we oh, looking yeah. at here? There's different estimates, but let me say um, it's at least $600 million a year. $600 which is million a year. A huge amount of money. So I said, you know, it's a huge amount of money. I don't know if we will get there, but let's see, you know, let's just start. 
And so my staff uh, said, you know, maybe you should consult first with other ministers and maybe you should consult, you know, with your prime minister. And I said, no, we're not going to consult with anyone. We're just going to do it. Because if you start talking, some initiatives get better. But I just knew that this one would take forever to be created. And we needed a movement now uh, because it was very urgent. And so that's what we did. So uh, that was Monday morning. On Tuesday, we released uh, uh, the press statement. And um, so I, I gave this small interview near my home because there was no other time slot available in the freezing cold in January. In Amsterdam, it's very cold at that time. And so um, and then it took off by itself. And there was a lot of uh, interest from international media, from Al Jazeera to the BBC. And um, many, many people started calling, emailing. And colleague ministers were also calling me and saying, you know, we want to be part of this. And so the first ones were the Belgians and the Luxembourgs, of course, our neighbors. The first African country to join very, very uh, soon was Cabo Verde. And we end up now with more than 60 countries being part of the initiative, ranging from, of course, South Africa uh, to Mongolia, Vietnam, Afghanistan, uh, Canada. Well, you name it. Everyone is a part of it. And so we raised uh, over 400 million euros, uh, so $450 million already. And that's quite amazing. And... Um, it's, of course, about the funds that was uh, that we needed, but it's also about amplifying the voices of women on this issue. You know, uh, you are the only one who gets to decide if you have sex, with whom you have sex, if you have children, how many. You're the one that needs to be able to decide, and um, that's what this all about. And it's it's amazing to see how much support it got, yeah. Well, first, I th- congratulations. I Thanks. Think it is absolutely fantastic. And in terms of, of target, you're almost, well, you're over two-thirds. Yeah. You're, you're pushing through to nearly 70% of target. Do you think that having this campaign running, having funding sourced from different environments where people are really involved in it is going to be sustainable and almost say, okay, we don't need your money, U.S. Yeah, there is, um, there's a few ways in which to get funding for these issues. One is we get some money from Gates. There's an anonymous donor who gave $50 million. There's governments, there's people like you and me donating whatever we can miss. And then there is the opportunity to work with governments Uh, as activists and ask your own government to free up more money for these services within their national health Mm -hmm. budgets. It becomes local, it becomes national. Yeah, and then it's, of course, sustainable. And this is also one of the reasons why I really wanted it to be a global movement because, I mean, here in South Africa, it's South African women and men who can hold their own government accountable. That's not up for me. And so if everyone can do that in their own in their own local or national context, that will in the end be super sustainable. Um, we're not there yet, and that's okay. Well, it's a young movement. It's Yeah, it's a very young movement, yeah. But, you know, I'm very ambitious. Um, but 
I mean, to be frank with you, if if you had said to me one year ago that I would now be in South Africa, that South Africa would host the second She Decides conference, that we would have this massive support all out, all around the world, I would say, you know, well, thank you. Yeah, I hope it will be like that, but I don't think so. But here it is. And so... Um, for an initiative to take off by itself, it's very rewarding. People call me the mother of She Decides, which I think is a is a very, very nice title. So I'm also happy, like, you know, mothers do, to watch out, but also to let go and uh, have its, make sure that it gets its own life and where other people also can play uh, an important role. Movements are important, but keeping the momentum to sustain them, I think, is almost more important than starting it. I would agree, yeah. What do you think needs to happen to keep the energy? Well, the thing is, this question, of course, was one that I also asked myself last year. How can we keep the momentum? And in a way, it's women all around the world who have made sure that there is this momentum. So there's young activists from the Philippines who speak out during radio shows like this one, who speak out uh, in in youth clubs. There's uh, the Belgium uh, deputy prime minister who takes every opportunity to talk to talk about she decides. So it's really, I would say, responsibility of everyone who feels part of the movement to keep it going. Um, we also, someone, um, a civil servant in the Netherlands, came up with this great idea to have a She Decides Day. So March the 2nd is the She Decides Day. And on that day, there were events all around the world, uh, as you already mentioned, from Mumbai to Amsterdam, from uh, Johannesburg uh, to uh, Dakar. And and I think uh, if... If a movement is strong, then it gets uh, the momentum that it really needs, and it's us that keep it going. Yeah, mm. but I agree. Uh, if it's only a one-time shot, it still can be relevant. Uh, but for women to be able to decide for themselves is something that you know, it's a it's a human right. But we're not there yet, so it needs to be continued. So that's the movement. One of the things that I found um, beyond beyond the movement and establishing it and for women to take ownership of, of their bodies themselves is that I was moved by a book. It, it's quite old now, um, Free Economics by Stephen Levitt. Yeah. And one of the things there, he spoke about how crime rate had been reduced because of an abortion bill becoming legalized. And I didn't fully appreciate it until I went into the details. And when you look at what this campaign is is doing, that if you have children, well, A, as you said, the abortion rate's not going to go down. But what it means is that there's going to be much, much more risk to mothers because they are are doing things on back streets or uh, unhygienic environments. There's going to be children who are unwanted, that are being born into a society, that are then going to be neglected, and that in itself causes a whole load of of social and uh, economic and and poverty issues, which sort of perpetuates the cycle, which is why I think um, from a pro-choice perspective, 
this movement is so important for so much more to economies. I would agree with you. I mean, there's a lot of studies that come up with data that uh, give the evidence that if women have full access to economic opportunities like men, then uh, the world economy would be growing at a pace that, you know, we can't even imagine. And so we're losing not only on an individual level as women, but also on, on a more macro level, we're losing a lot of opportunities as a society by not providing women uh, with all means of production that we provide men with. And so for women to have access is important, but also to have control over their bodies. Um, one of the things that that clinics do that give sex education and uh, provide safe abortion is that they also give post-abortion care. And so uh, they would talk to girls uh, when they had to have an abortion about how to make sure to protect themselves the next time around. And, of course, the crooks in the back alleys, they don't do that. And so um, for women and girls to to have to go to all those, well, I call them crooks, it's just criminal. I mean, who wants to be responsible for that? I don't want to be responsible Sounds for like that. Sounds like a butcher shop. Well, and, and they look like it. And what they do is, I mean, the stories that you sometimes hear is they're appalling. It's 2018. Why do we have, why do we let women go through these things? It's horrible, really horrible. Well, well done on starting this movement, uh, being the pioneer and allowing it to be championed and lived through others. Thank you. Staying with the aspect of champion women's rights, in 2018, Iceland became the first country in the world to make it illegal to pay men more than women for doing the same job. I think it's astounding that unequal pay is still a reality around the world. Uh, Countries do have various legislation. South Africa, for instance, has the equal pay for work of equal value. I recall a year or so ago, Salesforce in the USA, the CEO, decided to consciously up the salaries of women so everyone was uh, on equal terms. In January, the BBC, there were six men who said, we will reduce our salaries in order for you to increase our female counterpart salaries. Firstly, I don't think they should be decreasing their salaries. I think that women's salaries should be increased, but that's uh, an, another point. <laughs> but besides that, you have been instrumental in, in driving the agenda, and now you're taking a bill, in effect, to Parliament in the Netherlands to almost replicate what happened in Iceland. Can you tell us more about this process, where it is, how it started, I Like you, I um, read about this bill uh, in Iceland and um, I thought this is an amazing idea because this gender pay gap has been there forever and no one really wants it, but it's there and we don't seem to get it under control. So in the Netherlands, the gender pay gap on average is 16.16% and that's a lot. And so when I read about this bill, I thought, I'm going to do the same for the Netherlands. And so 
we um, we started to read about it and we got the bill, which of course was in a language that we do not understand. But I was approached by a girl where, uh, whose father is from Iceland, whose mother is Dutch. And she said, you know, can I help? And I said, yes, you can translate the bill for us. And so that's what she did. And three other uh, political parties, the Greens, uh, the Socialist Party and our party for uh, 50 plus, for our senior party, they said, you know, we want to work with you. And so we're now very close to bringing the bill to Parliament. Um, It's really the concept uh, that is also used in Iceland. And what it does, and this is, I think, is essential. The bill says it's the responsibility of the employer to pay equal for equal work. And so that really changes the narrative because now it's the responsibility of the employee to think, hmm, do I get paid enough? Should I get more? And this is a very uncomfortable process because you have to go to your male colleague and say, how much do you earn? In my country, that is a bit of a taboo also, talking about salaries, and then you have to go to your manager this is not a process that you want to go through. So you almost have to prove yes. that you are being paid less. Yes. Well, you have to, basically. And then your employer can take it up even or though, not. Even though the employer knows exactly how much he or she yeah. is paying every person I on know, their payroll. I know. But they don't make that kind of calculation. And that's very interesting because there's a lot of employers who also talk to me and say, you know, this bothers me too, but I just don't know how to handle it. So we hope that this bill will help. Um, The process in the Netherlands is so we take it, we present it, and then we consult. There's a formal period of consulting, which is, I I think, good. So the trade unions, uh, the employers, associations, everyone can give some feedback and then it gets better because of the feedback and then we'll bring it to parliament. And so I can I can just not imagine that there will be parties who will be voting against this. I mean, uh, everyone is talking about women's rights and, you know, how important that is and all those values. Well, this is the point in time where you can say, you know, uh, I, I, I really think women have the same rights as men do. And so I will vote for this bill. So it's, yeah, it's been an interesting process and, um, I'd never been in parliament. And so, Making a bill is quite a complex thing to do, uh, but I love to take initiatives and not wait for others. And so um, when I read about the bill, as I said, I thought, um, yeah, this is what we need in, in my country too. Yeah, That does seem to be a theme of asking for forgiveness rather than asking for permission. Oh, yes, of course. Yeah. Well, I was born and raised as a Catholic, um, and uh, this is a very Catholic thing to do, yeah. Do first, and then if you have to ask for forgiveness, just do it. But, you know, the thing is, uh, I seldom have to ask for forgiveness because the things that you feel that you need to do are usually not only your own personal hang-up. It's something that many other people would also feel that it's needed. So, yeah. Well, the time might come that I need to ask for forgiveness, but I'm ready for it. Yeah. Today, we're talking to Ms. Lillian Plumen, who is a Dutch politician currently serving as a member of parliament in the Netherlands. One of the things that I consider to be important is female leadership in terms of helping to develop women, capacitating them further, and also demonstrating to both men and women that women can be competent leaders. 
because sometimes you'll see some hesitancy in older women, for example, on their, their pre-conceived mm. misconceptions of, of what women can do. So if you can please tell us, how do you think women occupying positions of leadership influence younger women mm. to consider non-stereotypical roles as viable career options? For younger women, I think it's really important to see that it can be done. That means that in all spheres of lives, I think you need role models. And this is true for politics on every level, local, national, international. It's true for the business sector, where in my country, we're lagging behind. We have very few uh, women CEOs uh, of multinational companies. Uh, we have not enough women in boards, for example. And if you look at our academia, we have female uh, professors, but we're very, very, very low on the list. Um, so uh, Botswana, for example, seems to have more, relatively more female pro professors than the Netherlands has. And so it, it's a bit of a struggle still to make sure that women uh, take up positions, that women are invited to take up uh, positions. And um, I think the the progress that we made is that basically more or less everyone feels that that is a situation that cannot be sustained. So in earlier days, <clears throat> it was the women's movement and we ourselves that were very unhappy with this situation. And nowadays uh, you see more and more men also saying, you know, this is not how it should be, which I think helps. And one of the lessons that I always give to younger women is do not be shy. So we have this, uh, there is this concept of how women and men look at their own opportunities. So if you invite a woman uh, that works for you to, if you offer her a, a different job, a promotion, then Usually she would say, oh, oh, really? You think I can do that at this point in my career already? And then you say, yeah, of course, because otherwise I would not have asked you. And so if you ask a man, he would probably say, oh, I thought you would never offer this to me. Right. And so um, I think women should not be shy, uh, should be more self-confident. And knowing that they react like that, it's also um, a responsibility of managers to maybe ask a few times and not take the first no for an answer. And we need this progress. And I don't know, I mean, it might be different in South Africa and across the continent, uh, but in my country, um, there's still this concept that you cannot be a good mother if you work full time. And um, so my mother, she didn't have an out-of-house job, but she did work more than full-time, obviously. And um, I don't think that um, working full-time is something that relates to being a good mother or a good father at all. Uh, everyone chooses their own path. But truth is, if you really want to, um, want to make a career, you have to work full-time. You cannot do it by two days. And so you can choose not to, which is fine with me. I mean, I would encourage you to live up to your full potential. 
And so if a government feels that women uh, should be more active uh, in the workplace, they should also provide the facilities, the childcare and everything that is related to that for women and men to have a healthy work-life balance. Uh, so there is this cultural notion uh, that is ingrained in our brains, which also sometimes makes it difficult for women to say, hey, listen, I do want to make a career and this is what I'm going to mm. do. And that's a challenge, I'd say, between when you put on your work cap and you go to work and you're in your work environment and doing your job, performing. But at the end of the day, you take that cap off and you go home. You still have to address family members, cultures. So if you've got an older parents, why are you working? Who's putting the dinner on the table? Who's looking after the children? And the reality is that a lot of the unpaid labor has fallen to the responsibility of, of women. So for people who, women who are working, they're almost having to do a, a second shift mm. to perform in their career and then still deliver on the goods to make sure that the home is, is running. Well, and of course, this is something that many women all around the world struggle with. And so, like I said, you need kind of policies uh, to empower women to make their own choices and you need to have a conversation at home. Mm -hmm. So um, if you if your partner is not willing to take up this family life as a joint responsibility, it will be very continue to be very tough on women to work and out of the home and work inside of the home. And so um, this would be my second advice to young women, you know, choose well who your partner is. Uh, and if if it's someone who's a nice guy but doesn't take any responsibility, maybe you should rethink your choices. It's got to be a partnership. That's I think that's is, it is the key thing. That's it. And in in that, it's it's delegating responsibilities how yeah. you operate. And there's a there's lots of nice men who are willing and able to take that responsibility jointly. It's also the way people have been brought up, and the fundamental figure is probably the mother who is bringing people up. So I think that's another added responsibility on women on nurturing and nourishing their children to become uh, appropriately functioning adults in society. Yesterday I listened to a minister from uh, um, Norway explaining that she considered herself to have two important jobs. One was to raise her two boys into men that would take that responsibility jointly. And the other was being a minister and doing well for her country. And so I, I, I would agree with you that uh, the role of the mother is key. Um, if a mother promotes her kids, sons and daughters, to become who they want to be, that is so powerful for them and that will help them through life. Mm. And um, if a mother respect, it learns this, her sons to respect girls and women, that is also an asset for her son uh, to be carried through his life and, and be a good person to everyone. And so that responsibility is, is, is enormous. But of course, it cannot be, it cannot fall on the mother alone. There's a whole society around that that creates and recreates models that might not be, you know, promoting um, equality of women and men. And so we need to continue to fight against that. 
We are unfortunately coming towards the end of the show, and I'd like to turn a little bit more towards your personal perspective in the last sort of five minutes that we have. And one of the questions that I ask all my guests who've made tremendous achievements in their respective fields of expertise is about the factors that they think have contributed to their success. Some people speak about hard work, perseverance, resilience. If you could share with us a few of those factors. The defining factor, I think, for my career has been the confidence that my parents have given me that I can do whatever I want to do and that I can be whatever I can be. And so um, here again, the role of parents is is very important. Of course, I worked hard. Um, Some would say, you know, I tend to be a workaholic and I have to say that is true, maybe. Uh, so there is hard work, but um, I never suffered from that, I have to say. I really always enjoy what I'm doing. And if I don't enjoy it anymore, I consider it a change. And uh, so it gives me a lot of energy. Um, having said that, um, my family is very important to me. Um, uh, our children are grown up now. Um, but to to come home and kind of have to shift gears is very healthy for a person. And when you're a minister, of course, everyone wants to do the right thing for you and they open doors and they carry your bags and they do all all these kinds of things. And then it's very good to come home and, you know, uh, your kids are saying, you know, sorry, mom, uh, we didn't leave supper for you. Uh, You have to cook something for yourself. A a reality check. A reality check. And so so my family and and I have to say throughout uh, my career and my life, I've had the opportunity to have a wonderful group of friends uh, who are very supportive. We meet every six weeks and we talk about, you know, career and life and everything. And if we can support each other, you know, we do that. And so I think also that the feeling that whatever you're doing, you are supported by friends and family is really important. Mm-hmm. My final word on this would be something that which I mentioned earlier on never underestimate what you can do do not be shy there's no reason to be shy because you're a special person as you are and everyone has talents so please speak up uh, and um, make sure that that you are hurt because you're worth listening to those are really strong factors that are very practical Can you tell us a few of the the pivotal moments in your life growing up that had a big impact on you? One of the moments that I I remember is when I was in in fifth grade, I was 11 years old. Uh, We, uh, at school, we had a a project that was like the new thing. And the project was about the war in Vietnam. And this was the first time that I realized that wars are political choices made by men. And so if you would speak about, you know, coming of age politically, for me, that has been a very defining moment. And otherwise, um, we so we were not very affluent and we didn't go on holidays and we never went abroad to other countries. But the world came to us because, you know, we read papers and um, People came in who had traveled and 
So this concept of that there is more than your own small environment, there's a world out there that also needs you maybe, um, is something that that uh, my parents really pressed on us. And the fact that, you know, although we were not very rich, um, we had a very good life compared to many, many other people uh, who had to struggle for their freedom and their voice and their food every day. And so this kind of this feeling of you have to be in solidarity with others. I mean, that's not one moment, but that that really um, is something that I've been brought up with and that that I carry with me uh, in, in a very positive sense, I have to say. Yeah. Solidarity. What would you say has been the best lesson that you've learned or lessons? Oh, that's, of course, every day you learn. Uh, there's a lesson. Um, maybe I should, the lesson that I learned is, the one that I give is, I think, relevant for other women. Um, the lesson that I learned is that you have to live up to your position. In the Netherlands, we are relatively informal, and the hierarchy is not very visible. So we we do not have a lot of protocol, for example, in a way, that's a good thing because everyone can express themselves like like they want to. For women, it's not that good because um, you have to create your own protocol so that people understand when you're a minister, this is the minister who walks into the room. And this is the woman in the room who holds the most power of, of all of us. And so the lesson is... I would say to women is to make sure that everyone understands what your position is. Sometimes the hierarchy can do that for you. Sometimes protocol does it for you. But if that doesn't work out, you have to do it yourself. I haven't heard that before. And I think it is a really, really important lesson. Now, lastly, as we close out the show today, can you please share a few words of inspiration that you'd like to impart to young women that are listening to us today? I'm very, very honored to always to be speaking to younger women. Um, I would say follow your own path, which means make your own choices and um do not have regrets. There's always a new opportunity and never hesitate if you're, if you feel that you can do something that is meaningful, that can be, you know, uh, in your own family or community. Uh, but you can also, um, make sure that other women in other parts of your country or the world benefit from what you do. And so don't be afraid. Don't be shy. Go for it, and if necessary, ask for forgiveness. But if that's not necessary, do not do it. So um, I would say the lesson from She Decides is we say to everyone, you know, stand up and speak out. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on our show, and we will certainly look out into the news to see how the movement changes with She Decides and also the progress that is made in terms of attaining equal pay for work of equal value. Thank you so much. It was great to be on your show. You have been listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity on Channel Africa, The African Perspective. And we have been talking to Ms. Lillian Kluman, a Dutch politician with the Labour Party, currently serving as Member of Parliament in the Netherlands. She was the former Minister of Foreign Trade and Development Cooperation of the Netherlands and is the founder of She Decides.